Damon Runyon was best known for his short stories celebrating the world of Broadway in New York City that grew out of the Prohibition era. His stories gave literature and movies a whole new character, a fast-talking New Yorker with connections to anything and everything shady, and the kind of guys and dolls that came to be known as Runyon-esque characters. He spun humorous and sentimental tales of gamblers, hustlers, actors, and gangsters, few of whom went by square names, preferring instead colorful monikers such as Nathan Detroit, Benny South Street, Big Jewel, Harry the Horse, Good Time Charlie, Dave the Dude, or the Seldom Seen Kid. His writing style was unusual, too. It was in the present tense, a mixture of formal speech and colorful slang. In many ways, a lot like one of our other favorite authors, O. Henry. Runyon was also a well-known newspaper reporter, covering sports and general news for decades for various publications and syndicates owned by William Randolph Hearst. He was pals with Western gunman-turned-sports writer Bad Masterson, and followed the same trail to Mexico that his writer pal Ambrose Bierce took with Pancho Villa. But Runyon returned in one piece, and Bierce didn't. Runyon arrived in New York City in 1910 and began covering boxing, horse racing, gambling, and sports, where his knack for spotting the eccentric and the unusual, on the field or in the stands, is credited with revolutionizing the way baseball was covered. Twenty of Damon Runyon's character-rich stories became motion pictures. And now, The Three Wise Men by Damon Runyon. One cold winter afternoon, I am standing at the bar in Good Time Charlie's Little Drum in West 49th Street, partaking of a mixture of rock candy and rye whiskey. And this is a most surprising thing for me to be doing, as I am by no means a rum pot, and very seldom indulge in alcoholic beverages in any way, shape, manner, or form. But when I step in a good time Charlie's on the afternoon in question, I am feeling as if maybe I have a touch of grip coming on, and good time Charlie tells me there is nothing in this world as good for a touch of grip as rock candy and rye whiskey, as it assassinates the germs at once. It seems that good time Charlie always keeps a stock of rock candy and rye whiskey on hand for touches of a grip, and he gives me a few doses immediately, and in fact, Charlie takes a few doses with me, as he says there is no telling but what I am scattering germs of my touch of the grip all around the joint, and he must safeguard his health. We are both commencing to feel much better when the door opens, and who comes in but a guy by the name of Blondie Swanson. This Blondie Swanson is a big, six-foot-two guy, with straw-colored hair, pink cheeks, and he is originally out of Harlem, and it is well known to me and one and all that in his day he is the largest puller on the Atlantic seaboard. In fact, for upwards of ten years, Blondie's bringing wet goods into New York from Canada, and one place and another, and in all this time he never gets a fall, which is considered a phenomenal record for an operator as extensive as Blondie. Well, Blondie steps up alongside me at the bar, and I ask him if he cares to have a few doses of rock candy and rye whiskey with me and good time Charlie. And Blondie says he will consider it a privilege and a pleasure, because, he says, he always has something of a sweet tooth. So we had these few doses, and I say to Blondie Swanson that I hope and trust that business is thriving with him. I have no business, Blondie Swanson says. I retire from business. Well, if J. Pierpont Morgan or John Rockefeller or Henry Ford step up and tell me they retire from business, I will not be more astonished than I am by this statement from Blondie Swanson, and in fact, not as much. 
I consider Blondie's statement the most important commercial announcement I hear in many years, and naturally I ask him why he makes such a decision, and what is to become of thousands of citizens who are dependent upon him for merchandise. Well, Blondie says, I retire from business because I am 100% American citizen. In fact, he says, I am a patriot. I served my country in the late war. I am sighted at Chateau Thierry. I always vote the straight Democratic ticket, except, he says, when we figure it better to elect some Republican. I always stand up when the band plays the Star Spangled Banner. One year I even pay an income tax, Blondie says. And of course, I know that many of these things are true, although I remember hearing rumors that if the draft officer is along half an hour later than he is, he will not see Blondie for heel dust, and that what Blondie is cited for at Chateau Thierry is for not robbing the dead. But of course, I do not speak of these matters to Blondie Swanson, because Blondie is not such a guy as will care to listen to rumors, and may become indignant, and when Blondie is indignant, he is very difficult to get along with. Now, Blondie says, I am a booty for a long time and supply very fine merchandise to my trade, as everybody knows, and it is a respectable business because one and all in this country are in favor of it, except the prohibitionists. But, he says, I can see into the future and I can see that one of these days they are going to repeal the prohibition law and then it will be most unpatriotic to be bringing in wet goods from foreign parts in competition with home industry. So, I retire. Blondie says. Well, Blondie, I say, your sentiments certainly do you credit, and if we have more citizens as high-minded as you are, this will be a better country. Furthermore, Blondie says, there is no money in booting anymore. All the booties in this country are broke. I am broke myself, he says. I just lose the last piece of property I own in the world, which is the 25G home I build in Atlantic City, figuring to spend the rest of my days there with Miss Clarabelle Cobb before she takes a run-out powder on me. Well, Blondie says, if I only listen to Miss Clarabelle Cobb, I will now be an honest clerk in a gent's furnishing store with maybe a cute little apartment up around 110th Street and children running all around and about. And with this, Blondie sighs heavily. And I sigh with him, because the romance of Blondie Swanson and Miss Clarabelle Cobb is well known to one and all on Broadway. It goes back a matter of anyway six years when Blondie Swanson's making money as fast as he can scarcely stop to count it. And at this time, Miss Clarabelle Cobb is the most beautiful doll in this town. And many citizens almost lose their mind just gazing at her when she's a member of Mr. Georgie White's scandals, including Blondie Swanson. In fact, after Blondie Swanson sees Miss Clarabelle Cobb in just one performance of Mr. Georgie White's scandals, he is never quite the same guy again. He goes to a lot of bother meeting up with Miss Clarabelle Cobb, and then he takes to hanging out around Mr. Georgie White's stage door and sending Miss Clarabelle Cobb ten-pound boxes of candy and floral horseshoes and wreaths and also packages of trinkets, including such articles as diamond bracelets and brooches and vanity cases, for there is no denying that Blondie is a fast guy with a dollar. But it seems that Miss Clarabelle Cobb will not accept any of these offerings, except the candy and the flowers, and she goes so far as to return a sable coat that Blondie sends her one very cold day, and she is openly criticized for this action by some of the other dolls in Mr. Georgie White's scandals, for they say that after all, there's a limit 
even to eccentricity. But Miss Clarabelle Cobb states she is not accepting valuable offerings from any guy, and especially a guy who is engaged in trafficking in the demon rum, because she says that his money is nothing but blood money that comes from breaking the law of the land. Although, as a matter of fact, this is a dead wrong rap against Blondie Swanson, as he never handles a drop of rum in his life, only scotch, and furthermore, he keeps himself pretty well straightened out with the law. The idea is, Miss Clarabel Cobb comes of very religious people back in Akron, Ohio, and she is taught from childhood that rum is a terrible thing, and personally, I think it is myself, except in cocktails, and furthermore, the last thing her mama tells her when she leaves for New York is to beware of any guys who come around offering her diamond bracelets and fur coats, because her mama says such guys are undoubtedly snakes in the grass, and probably on the make. But while she will not accept his offerings, Miss Clarabel Cobb does not object to going out with Blondie Swanson now and then, and putting on the chicken Mexicane and the lobster Newburg and other items of this nature. And any time you put a good-looking young guy and a beautiful doll together over the chicken Mexicane and the lobster Newburg often enough, you are apt to have a case of love on your hands. And this is what happens to Blondie Swanson and Miss Clarabel Cobb. And in fact, they become in love more than somewhat, and Blondie Swanson is wishing to marry Miss Clarabel Cobb, but one night over a batch of lobster Newburg, she says to him like this, Blondie, she says, I love you, and, she says, I will marry you in a minute if you get out of the trafficking in rum. I will marry you if you are out of the rum business and do not have a dime, but will never marry you as long as you are dealing in rum, no matter if you have a hundred million. Blondie says he will get out of the racket at once, and he keeps saying this every now and then for a year or so, and the chances are that several times he means it. But when a guy's in this business in those days as strong as Blondie Swanson is, it's not so easy for him to get out, even if he wishes to do so. And then one day Miss Clarabel Cobb has a talk with Blondie, and says to him as follows, Blondie, she says, I still love you, but you care more for your business than you do for me. So I am going back to Ohio, she says. I am sick and tired of Broadway anyhow. Some day when you're really through with the terrible traffic you are now engaged in, come to me. And with this, Miss Clarabel Cobb takes plenty of outdoors on Blondie Swanson, and is seen no more in these parts. At first, Blondie thinks she's only trying to put a little pressure on him, and will be back. But as the weeks become months, and the months finally count up into years, Blondie can see that she is by no means clowning with him. Furthermore, he never hears from her, and all he knows is that she is back in Akron, Ohio. Well, Blondie's always promising himself that he will soon pack in on hauling wet goods and go look up Miss Clarabel Cobb and marry her. But he keeps putting it off and putting it off until finally one day he hears that Miss Clarabel Cobb marries some legitimate guy in Akron. And this is a terrible blow to Blondie, indeed. And from this day, he never looks at another doll again. Or anyway, not much. Naturally, I expressed my deep sympathy to Blondie about being broke, and I also mentioned that my heart bleeds for him in his loss of Miss Clarabel Cobb. And we have a few doses of rock candy and rye whiskey on both propositions. And by this time... Good time Charlie runs out of rock candy. And anyway, it is a lot of bother for him to be mixing it up with the rye whiskey. So we have the rye whiskey without the rock candy. And personally, I do not notice much difference. Well, 
while we are standing there at the bar having our rye whiskey without the rock candy, who comes in but an old guy by the name of the Dutchman, who is known to one and all as a most illegal character in every respect. In fact, the Dutchman has no standing whatever in the community, and I am somewhat surprised to see him appear in Good Time Charlie's, because the Dutchman is generally a lammy from place to place, and the gendarmes everywhere are always anxious to have a chat with him. The last I hear of the Dutchman, he is in college somewhere out west for highway robbery, although afterwards he tells me it is a case of mistaken identity. It seems he mistakes a copper in plain clothes for a grocery man. The Dutchman is an old-fashioned looking guy of maybe fifty-odd, and he has gray hair and a stubby gray beard, and he is short and thick-set and always good-natured, even when there is no call for it. "'and to look at him you would think there is no more harm in him "'than there is in a preacher, and maybe not as much. "'As the Dutchman comes in, he takes a peek all around and about, "'as if he's looking for somebody in particular, "'and when he sees Blondie Swanson, he moves up alongside Blondie "'and begins whispering to Blondie until Blondie pulls away "'and tells him to speak freely. "'Now the Dutchman has a very interesting story, and it goes like this.' It seems that about eight or nine months back, the Dutchman is mobbed up with a party of three very classy, heavy guys who make quite a good thing of going around knocking off safes in small-town jugs and post offices and stores and taking the money or whatever else is available in these safes. This is once quite a popular custom in this country, although it dies out to some extent of late years because they improved the brand of safes so much it's a lot of bother knocking them off. But it comes back during the Depression when there's no other way of making money until it is a very prosperous business again. And, of course, this is very nice for old-time heavy guys, such as the Dutchman, because it gives them something to do in their old age. Anyway, it seems that this party the Dutchman is with goes over into Pennsylvania one night on a tip from a friend and knocks off a safe in a factory office and gets a payroll amounting to maybe 50 G's. But it seems that while they are making their getaway in an automobile, the gendarmes take out after them, and there is a chase, during which there is considerable blasting back and forth. Well, finally in this blasting, the three guys with the Dutchman get cooled off, and the Dutchman also gets shot up quite some, and he abandons the automobile out on an open road, taking the money, which is in a grip sack, with him, and he somehow manages to escape the gendarmes by going across country and hiding here and there. But the Dutchman gets pretty well petered out, what with his wounds, and trying to lug the grip sack, and one night he comes to an old deserted barn, and he decides to stash the grip sack in this barn, because there is no chance he can keep lugging it around much longer. So he takes up a few boards in the floor of the barn, and digs a nice hole in the ground underneath, and plants the grip sack there, figuring to come back some day and pick it up. Well, the Dutchman gets over into New Jersey one way and another and lays up in a town by the name of New Brunswick until his wounds are healed, which requires considerable time as the Dutchman cannot take it nowadays as good as he can when he is younger. Furthermore, even after the Dutchman recovers and gets to thinking of going after the stashed gripsack, he finds he is about half out of confidence, which is what happens to all guys when they commence getting old and he figures that it may be a good idea to declare somebody else in to help him. And the first guy he thinks of is Blondie Swanson, because he knows Blondie Swanson is a very able citizen in every respect. Now, Blondie, the Dutchman says, if you like my proposition, 
I'm willing to cut you in for 50%, and 50% of 50 G's is by no means pretzels in these times. Well, Dutchman, Blondie says, I will gladly assist you in this enterprise on the terms you state. It appeals to me as a legitimate proposition, because there is no doubt this dough is coming to you, and from now on I am strictly legit. But in the meantime, let us have some more rock candy and rye whiskey, without the rock candy, while we discuss the matter further. But it seems that the Dutchman does not care for rock candy and rye whiskey, even without the rock candy, so Blondie Swanson and me and Good Time Charlie continue taking our doses, and Blondie keeps getting more enthusiastic about the Dutchman's proposition, until finally I become enthusiastic myself, and I say, I think I will go along, as it is an opportunity to see new sections of the country, while Good Time Charlie states that it will always be the great regret of his life that his business keeps him from going, but that he will provide us with an ample store of rock candy and rye whiskey, without the rock candy, in case we run into any touches of the grip. Well, anyway, this is how I came to be riding around in an old can belonging to the Dutchman on a very cold Christmas Eve with the Dutchman and Blondie Swanson, although none of us happened to think of it as being Christmas Eve until we noticed that there seems to be holly wreaths in windows here and there as we go bouncing along the roads. And finally we pass a little church that is all lit up, and somebody opens the door as we are passing, and we see a big Christmas tree inside the church, and it is a very pleasant sight, indeed. And in fact, it makes me a little homesick. Although, of course, the chances are I will not be seeing any Christmas trees, even if I am home. We leave Good Time Charlie's along mid-afternoon with the Dutchman driving this old can of his, and all I seem to remember about the trip is going through a lot of little towns so fast they seem strung together, because most of the time I am dozing in the back seat. Blondie Swanson is riding in the front seat with the Dutchman, and Blondie also cops a little snooze now and then as we are going along. But whenever he happens to wake up, he pokes me awake too, so we can take a dose of rock candy and rye whiskey without the rock candy. So in many respects, it is quite an enjoyable journey. I recollect the little church because we pass it right after we go busting through a pretty fair-sized town, and I hear the Dutchman say the old barn is now only a short distance away, and by this time it is dark and colder than a deputy sheriff's heart, and there is snow on the ground, although it is clear overhead, and I am wishing I am back in Mindy's restaurant wrapping myself around a nice T-bone steak when I hear Blondie Swanson Ask the Dutchman if he is sure he knows where he is going, and this seems to be an untraveled road. And the Dutchman states as follows. Why, he says, I know I am on the right road. I am following the big star you see up ahead of us, because I remember seeing the star always in front of me when I am going along the road before. So we keep following the star. But it turns out that it is not a star at all, but a light shining from the window of a ramshackle old frame building pretty well off to one side of the road and on a rise of ground. And when the Dutchman sees this light, he is greatly nonplussed indeed, and speaks as follows. Well, he says, this looks very much like my barn, but my barn does not call for a light in it. Let us investigate this matter before we go any further. So the Dutchman gets out of the old can and slips up to one side of the building and peeks through the window, and then he comes back and motions for Blondie and me to also take a peek through this window, which is nothing but a square hole cut in the side of the building with wooden bars across it, but no window panes, and what we behold inside by the dim light of a lantern hung on a nail on a post is really 
most surprising. There is no doubt whatever that we are looking at the inside of a very old barn, for there are several stalls for horses, or maybe cows, here and there, but somebody seems to be living in the barn, as we can see a table and a couple of chairs and a tin stove in which there is a little fire, and on the floor in one corner is what seems to be a sort of a bed. Furthermore, there seems to be somebody lying on the bed and making quite a fuss in the way of groaning and crying and carrying on generally in a loud tone of voice, and there is no doubt that it is the voice of a doll, and anybody can tell that this doll is in some distress. Well, here is a situation indeed, and we move away from the barn to talk it over. The Dutchman is greatly discouraged, because he gets to thinking that if this doll is living in the barn for any length of time, his plant may be discovered. He is willing to go away and wait a while. But Blondie Swanson seems to be doing quite some thinking, and finally Blondie says like this, Why, Blondie says, the doll on this barn seems to be sick, and only a bounder and a cad would walk away from a sick doll, especially, Blondie says, a sick doll who is a total stranger to him. In fact, it will take a very large heel to do such a thing. The idea is for us to go inside and see if we can do anything for this sick doll, Blondie says. Well, I say to Blondie Swanson that the chances are the doll's ever-loving husband, or somebody, is in town, or maybe over to the nearest neighbors digging up assistance, and will be back in a jiffy, and that this is no place for us to be found. No, Blondie says, it cannot be as you state. The snow on the ground is anyway a day old. There are no tracks around the door of this old joint, coming or going, and it is a cinch if anybody knows there is a sick doll here, they will have plenty of time to get help before this. I am going inside and look things over, Blondie says. Naturally, the Dutchman and I go too, because we do not wish to be left alone outside, and there is no trouble whatever to get into the barn as the door is unlocked, and all we have to do is walk in. And when we walk in with Blondie Swanson leading the way, the doll on the bed on the floor half raises up to look at us, and although the light of the lantern is none too good, anybody can see that this doll is nobody but Miss Clara Bell Cobb, although personally I see some changes in her since she is in Mr. Georgie White's scandals. She stays half raised up on the bed looking at Blondie Swanson for as long as you can count ten, if you count fast, "'Then she falls back and starts crying and carrying on again, "'and at this the Dutchman kneels down on the floor beside her "'to find out what is eating her. "'All of a sudden the Dutchman jumps up "'and speaks to us as follows. "'Why,' he says, "'this is quite a delicate situation to be sure. "'In fact,' he says, "'I must request you guys to step outside. "'What we really need for this case is a doctor, "'but it is too late to send for one. "'However,' I will endeavor to do the best I can under the circumstances. Then the Dutchman starts taking off his overcoat, and Blondie Swanson stands looking at him with such a strange expression on his kisser that the Dutchman laughs out loud and says like this, Do not worry about anything, Blondie, the Dutchman says. I am maybe a little out of practice since my old lady put her checks back on the rack, but she leaves eight kids alive and kicking, and I bring them all in except one because we are seldom able to afford a croaker. So Blondie Swanson and I step out of the barn, and after a while the Dutchman calls us, and we go back into the barn to find he has a big fire going in the stove and the place nice and warm. 
Miss Claire Belcobb is now all quieted down and is covered with the Dutchman's overcoat. And as we come in, the Dutchman tiptoes over to her and pulls back the coat. And what do we see? But a baby with a noggin no bigger than a crab apple and a face as wrinkled as some old peppy guy's. And the Dutchman states that it is a boy and a very healthy one at that. Furthermore, the Dutchman says, the mama is doing as well as can be expected. She is as strong a doll as I ever see, he says, and all we have to do now is send out a croaker when we go to town just to make sure there are no complications. But, the Dutchman says, I guarantee the croaker will not have much to do. Well, the old Dutchman is as proud of this baby as if it is his own, and I do not wish to hurt his feelings, so I say, the baby is a darbaroo, and a great credit to him in every respect, and also to Miss Clarabel Cobb, while well, Blondie Swanson just stands there looking at it as if he never sees a baby before in his life, and is greatly astonished. It seems that Miss Clarabel Cobb is a very strong doll, just as the Dutchman states, and in about an hour she shows signs of being wide awake, and Blondie Swanson sits down on the floor beside her, and she talks to him quite a while in a low voice. And while they are talking, the Dutchman pulls up the floor in another corner of the barn and digs around underneath a few minutes and finally comes up with a grip sack covered with dirt. And he opens this grip sack and shows me it is filled with lovely, large, coarse banknotes. Later, Blondie Swanson tells the Dutchman and me the story of Miss Clarabel Cobb, and parts of this story are rather sad. It seems that after Miss Clarabel Cobb goes back to her old home in Akron, Ohio, she winds up marrying a young guy by the name of Joseph Hatcher, who is a bookkeeper by trade and has a pretty good job in Akron. So Miss Clarabel Cobb and this Joseph Hatcher are as happy as anything together for quite a spell. Then about a year before the night I am telling about, Joseph Hatcher is sent by his firm to these parts where we find Miss Clarabel Cobb to do the bookkeeping in a factory there. And one night, a few months afterwards, when Joseph Hatcher is staying after hours in the factory office working on his books, a mob of wrong G's breaks into the joint and sticks him up and blows open the safe, taking away a large sum of money and leaving Joseph Hatcher tied up like a turkey. When Joseph Hatcher is discovered in this predicament the next morning, what happens but the gendarmes put the sleeve on him and place him in the pokey, saying that chances are Joseph Hatcher is in and in with the safe blowers and then he tips them off that the dough is in the safe. And it seems that the guy who is especially fond of this idea is a guy by the name of Ambersham, who is the manager of the factory, and a very hard-hearted guy at that. And now, although this is eight or nine months back, there is Joseph Hatcher still in the pokey awaiting trial, and it is seven to five anywhere in town that the judge throws the book at him when he finally goes to bat because it seems from what Miss Clarabel Cobb tells Blondie Swanson that nearly everybody figures Joseph Hatcher is guilty. But of course Miss Clarabel Cobb does not put in with popular opinion about her ever-loving Joe, and she spends the next few months trying to spring him from the pokey, but she has no potatoes and no way of getting any potatoes, so things go from bad to worse for Miss Clarabel Cobb. Finally, she finds herself with no place to live in town, and she happens to run into this old barn, which is on an abandoned property owned by a doctor in town by the name of Kelton, and it seems that he is a kind-hearted guy, and he gives her permission to use it any way she wishes. So Miss Clarabel moves into the barn, and the chances are 
"'There is many a time when she wishes she is back "'in Mr. Georgie White's scandals.' "'Now the Dutchman listens to this story with great interest, "'especially the part about Joseph Hatcher "'being left tied up in the factory office. "'And finally the Dutchman states as follows. "'Why, my goodness!' the Dutchman says. "'There is no doubt but what this is the very same young guy "'we are compelled to dress up the night we get this gripsack. "'As I recollect it, he wishes to battle for his employer's dough, "'and I personally tap him over the cocoa with a blackjack. "'But,' he says, "'he is by no means the guy who tips us off about the dough being there. "'As I remember it now, it is nobody but the guy whose name you mentioned "'in Miss Clarabel Cobb's story. "'It is this guy Ambersham.' the manager of the joint, and come to think of it, he is supposed to get his bit of this dough for his trouble, and it is only fair that I carry out this agreement as the executor of the estate of my late comrades. Although, the Dutchman says, I do not approve of his conduct towards this Joseph Hatcher, but, he says, the first thing for us to do is get a doctor out here to Miss Clarabel Cobb, and I judge the doctor for us to get is this Doc Kelton she speaks of. So the Dutchman takes the grip sack, and we get into the old can and head back the way we come. Although before I go, I see Blondie Swanson bend down over Miss Clarabel Cobb, and while I do not wish this to go any farther, I will take a paralyzed oath. I see him plant a small kiss on the baby's noggin, and I hear Miss Clarabel Cobb speak as follows. I will name him for you, Blondie, she says. By the way, Blondie, what is your right name? Olaf, Blondie says. It is now along in the early morning, and not many citizens are stirring as we go through town again, with Blondie in the front seat again, holding the grip sack on his lap so the Dutchman can drive. But finally we find a guy in an all-night lunch counter who knows where Doc Kelton lives, and this guy stands on the running board of the old can and guides us to a house in a side street. And after pounding on the door quite a spell, we rouse the Doc out, and Blondie goes inside to talk to him. He is in there quite a spell, but when he comes out, he says everything is okay, and that Doc Kelton will go at once to look after Miss Clarabel Cobb and take her to a hospital. And Blondie states that he leaves a couple of C's with Doc to make sure Miss Clarabel Cobb gets the best of care. Well, the Dutchman says, we can afford a couple of C's out of what we have in this grip sack, but, he says, I am still wondering if it is not my duty to look up this Ambersham "'and give him his bit. "'Dutchman?' Blondie says. "'I fear I have some bad news for you. "'The gripsack is gone. "'This Doc Kelton strikes me as a right guy in every respect, "'especially,' Blondie says, "'as he states to me that he always half suspects "'there is a wrong rap-in on Miss Claire Belcob's ever-loving Joe, "'and that if it is not for this guy, Ambersham, "'agitating all the time, "'other citizens may suspect the same thing.' "'and it will not be so tough for Joe. "'So,' Blondie says, "'I tell Doc Kelton the whole story "'about Ambersham and all, "'and I take the liberty of leaving the grip sack with him "'to be returned to the rightful owners. "'And Doc Kelton says, "'If he does not have Miss Clarabel Cobb's Joe out of the sneezer, "'and this Ambersham is on the run out of town in 24 hours, "'I can call him a liar. "'But,' Blondie says, "'let us now proceed on our way.' "'because I only have Doc Kelton's word "'that he will give us twelve hours leeway "'before he does anything "'except attend to Miss Clarabel Cobb, "'as I figure you need this much time "'to get out of sight, Dutchman.' "'Well, the Dutchman does not say anything "'about all this news for a while, "'and seems to be thinking the situation over. 
"'and while he is thinking, "'he has given his old can a little more gas than he intends, "'and she is fairly popping along "'what seems to be the main drag of the town, "'when a gendarme on a motorcycle comes up alongside us "'and motions the Dutchman to pull over to the curb. "'He's a nice-looking young gendarme, "'but he seems somewhat hostile as he gets off his motorcycle "'and walks up to us very slow "'and asks us where the fire is. "'Naturally, we do not say anything in reply,' which is the only thing to say to a gendarme under these circumstances. So he speaks as follows. What are you guys carrying in this old skillet anyway? He says. Stand up and let me look you guys over. And then as we stand up, he peeks into the front and back of the car and under our feet, and all he finds is a bottle which once holds some of Good Time Charlie's rock candy and rye whiskey without the rock candy, but which is now very empty. And he holds this bottle up, "'and sniffs at the nozzle, and asks what is formerly in this bottle. "'And I tell him the truth when I tell him it is once full of medicine, "'and the Dutchman and Blondie Swanson nod their heads in support of my statement. "'But the gendarme takes another sniff, and then he says like this, "'Oh,' he says, very sarcastic, "'wise guys, eh? Three wise guys, eh? "'Trying to kid somebody, eh? "'Medicine, eh?' he says, "'Well, if it is not Christmas Day, "'I will take you in and hold you just on suspicion. "'But I will be Santa Claus to you "'and let you go ahead, wise guys.' "'And then, after we get a few blocks away, "'the Dutchman speaks as follows. "'Yes,' he says, "'that is what we are, to be sure. "'We are wise guys. "'If we are not wise guys, "'we will still have the gripsack in this car "'for the copper to find. "'And if the copper finds the gripsack, he will wish to take us to the jailhouse for investigation, and if he wishes us to take us there, I fear he will not be alive at this time, and we will be in plenty of heat, around and about, and personally. The Dutchman says, I am sick and tired of heat. And with this, the Dutchman puts a large Betsy back in the holster under his left arm, and turns on the gas, and as the old can begins leaving the lights of the town behind, I ask Blondie if he happens to notice the name of his town. Yes, Blondie says, I notice it on a signboard we just pass. It is Bethlehem, PA. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We hope you enjoyed The Three Wise Men by Damon Runyon. Be sure to tune in to our other shows at 1001. Those are 1001 Heroes, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. All the links are in the show notes for you and stop by patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network and pledge a little support there. For $2.99 a month, we'll make you an assistant producer of 1001, and you can add that one to your resume. Got Alexa? Just ask her. Alexa, play the podcast 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and she'll give you our latest episode. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>